Welcome back to The Peripheral. This episode will be one that's close to my heart because it deals with addiction, how easy it is to relapse. I remember hearing Professor Carl Hart, he talked about the uh, the rat cocaine study, pretty much the propaganda study that when you give rats or mice cocaine in a cage, they will start using drugs over food and will eventually die of starvation. But that study was extremely flawed. Uh, they had to isolate the rat in a tank by itself and only offer it cocaine or methamphetamine, whatever the drug was, and give it no other option, get it hooked on the drug first, and then offer it food, and it preferred the drug over food. But when you had a large cage with multiple rats in it, and you offered them both cocaine and food, they would go for the food. There's a lot more angles and nuance to it than what you've heard about this study. And these are just rats. When it comes to human beings, when it comes to an individual, there are far more aspects that need to be investigated, researched, and addressed. While listening to the story, imagine if our guest was arrested and put in jail instead of getting treatment. Imagine if she had an extensive criminal record and was unable to get a job, unable to get health insurance, unable to get a therapist. Think about the alternate reality that she could have lived in. And I think this is why it's important that we treat addiction for what it is, which is a medical condition and not a criminal act. Also, big thank you to her. She recorded this on her own for me, and it's taken me a while to release it, so it really helped me out. She also recorded a part two for me uh, that gives a more detailed breakdown on the interactions of drugs. Uh, Between her story and part two, I found her story to be more important, but I do want people to be able to hear her part two, so... I'm going to put it on my Patreon for free. It'll be a public post. So if you go out to patreon.com slash the peripheral podcast, you will be able to hear her second part and what happens with the drug interactions. Also, if you want to support the podcast, please do so. I do have some extra content out there that you can listen to. So check it out. Justin, this is Grace. Uh, First off, I just wanted to say thank you. I'm a huge fan of The Peripheral and Generation Y. Um, I've always been a huge fan of your guys' podcasts, uh, especially The Peripheral. I think you touch on a lot of topics that uh, most podcasts don't. I wanted to share my story with you. I know that mental health has some ties uh, in your family, uh, in your personal history um, with your family that you've shared a little bit and you've had people on here before that have talked about mental health. I kind of wanted to share my story uh, mostly because listening to your other guests who are on really helped me feel not so alone. Uh, It made me realize that everyone goes through 
things to a certain extent, um, but everybody has struggles and no one really knows what they're doing, honestly, and that that's okay sometimes and it's okay to not understand what's going on. It's okay to not understand uh, what a loved one is going through. It's okay to not know how you're feeling. My story starts probably my first feelings of uh, feeling different from my friends. Um, I can remember the earliest is probably around 10 or 11. I just remember feeling extremely self-conscious, wouldn't wear t-shirts, only wore sweatshirts and jeans, and it, it, it kind of got written off as just a teenage hormonal thing. I was always a little bit bigger than most of my friends, and so there was that aspect of feeling self-conscious, which in retrospect, I didn't weigh that much more than my friends. Yeah, so I just always remember feeling really alone at times, even though I've had the same group of four or five friends since I was in kindergarten to this day. They are still my best friends in the whole world, which I am incredibly thankful for, and I don't know where I would be without them. But around 13, 14 is when it got really bad. Um, there literally wasn't a day in the four years of high school that I did not wear a sweatshirt. I did not take off my sweatshirt. If it was 95 degrees out, I did not want to show my arms. Um, I wore baggy jeans and baggy clothes. I refused flat out to show my skin. I thought I was too pale. I was too fat. I just didn't feel worthy of dressing appropriate for the weather. It really took a toll on me because one, it was extremely hot and uncomfortable, and two, it was something that people definitely noticed, and I got asked a lot, why are, why are you wearing a sweatshirt? It's 100 degrees outside. You're sweating. And it, it's kind of just something that I had to brush off all the time. And around that time through high school, I could remember feeling what I now know was anxiety, but at the time, I didn't know what it was. It wasn't an anxiety of feeling in danger of my life like some people's anxieties are uh, it was more of just being around people and not feeling good enough as anyone I didn't feel like I was good enough to be anyone uh, to be friends with anyone um, I was always thought of myself as the stupid one or the ugliest one in the room at all times just really awful things that teenagers do go through, but it was to a more extreme level. I remember when I was, I was 13 when I was a freshman in high school, there was an incident um, when I was super overwhelmed. I don't remember what was happening, but I remember I uh, took a mechanical pencil and I just started pretending to cut myself. Obviously, it didn't really do anything. It just left me with a few very superficial scratches. But I told my friend about what had happened, and she just didn't understand why I would do that. And, and that was the first time that I really scared myself because I didn't want to hurt myself necessarily, but it almost felt like that was 
a solution that I had heard of that had helped people who felt the way that I did, which was alone and isolated and not good enough. And so me taking that even small minor baby step to scratch myself with a pencil uh, really, it, it gave me a little bit of a scare, but it also, I think it honestly woke up uh, the, this other part of me that was just kind of realized that there was this huge dark side to life um I'm an only child my parents are still together I had a um I've had issues with my mom issues with my dad in terms of um just normal self-esteem projection issues but I I've I've never been abused I've had a great childhood overall I've had great friends I've had amazing support from all different kinds of families I never really saw this darker side of life my mom was uh, extremely abused when she was a child, just horrifically insane things that people wouldn't even believe are real. Uh, my dad came from an abusive home as well. I knew that this darker side of life existed and it always kind of enticed me, but I never really knew how to get there and it, it, it was just so fascinating to me and it, and it didn't seem to be fascinating to anybody else that I was hanging around with. They kind of looked at me funny when I would listen to screamo music or um, wear all black and do the whole teenage eyeliner thing and all that stuff. And that stuff really spoke to me for some reason, and I couldn't quite figure out why. I drank alcohol for the first time when I was 13. It, it was an okay experience. I didn't fall in love with it right away. I remember I would buy um, Vicodin when I was 15, I believe, from one of my best friends, uh, boyfriends at the time, and take it at school. And had no idea what, what it was, what the risks were. I just knew that I wanted to not be sober because I was so uncomfortable in my own skin. And from there, it kind of just progressed. After high school is when I started drinking a lot more. It was a lot of binge drinking. I There was rarely a time when I didn't black out when I would drink, um, rarely a time when I didn't throw up when I drank. I would have horrific hangovers in the morning, hangovers that would last two or three days sometimes almost. My friends were drinking as often I, as I was, but they weren't drinking as much as I was. And so it was the problem was kind of being masked because I was fitting in and I wasn't drinking alone. I wasn't, you know, doing anything super crazy. I would just black out and drink way too much. My friends would all be laughing about the night before, laughing at things that I did the night before. And sometimes it would be funny to me, but I, I literally wouldn't remember it. It gave me more anxiety the next day not remembering what I did that really started to take a hold when I uh, began this semi kind of relationship with a, a guy it was just one of those things that everyone has one of those casual things where you fall in love with them but they're not in love with you and it, and it became a pattern of me getting really drunk and trying to get in contact with this person and just completely embarrassing myself and just having zero self self-worth and self-esteem and looking back on it it's it's a big cringe moment for me him and I are still friends to this day he's actually in the process of getting sober so we can kind of look back at it and laugh about a year after I graduated high school, um, I took 
ecstasy for the first time with uh, one of my good friends, and I just instantly fell in love. I started taking ecstasy probably three times a week uh, on the weekends. Every once in a while, I'd take it on a weekday. Um, and then the tolerance would build up, so I'd be taking two, three pills on the weekends, three times a week. It sucked the life out of me, um, for lack of a better way to say it. It just completely drained my serotonin. Literally, it drained who I was. It drained my personality because I would be on ecstasy, and I would be the person who I thought that I was supposed to be. I was friendly, I was outgoing, I felt beautiful, I could talk to anyone, I could do anything I wanted. Life was just great and beautiful and everything was perfect. But then the next day, your brain is so depleted of um, all those chemicals that are taken up by the ecstasy rushing all the serotonin out of your brain it makes the depression the next day 7,000 million times worse, um, and you're just kind of stuck there. And it was this cycle of nights where I would feel like myself and feel like a person who I was supposed to be, and then I would wake up the next morning and just feel like complete shit and eat, just dig myself deeper and deeper into this hole of depression. Around that time, all of my best friends had moved to Santa Barbara, um, which is in Southern California, and they were going to college there. So my plan was to move there, thinking that getting away from that environment of being around people who I knew sold ecstasy and my friends who did ecstasy all the time, I somehow help. <laughs> Santa Barbara is a huge party school. It's I think it's ranked still like number one or number two on college parties. And it, and it was insane. It, I lived there for about three years. Um, in that time, I tried a number of drugs. I was doing cocaine regularly. I was doing LSD regularly. I was doing ketamine. I was doing pretty much everything. Um, I never did heroin or meth, and those are two things that I'm extremely thankful for that I never ended up somehow stumbling into contact with and making um, the bad decision to take those because those two are pretty gnarly drugs. Yeah, so I was enrolled in a city college in Santa Barbara while my friends were going to the um, university. I always had trouble in school. I had dropped out of pretty much every class um, that I had taken at the junior college in my hometown previously. I barely graduated high school. And it was frustrating because I'm, I know I'm intelligent and I knew that I had the ability to do it. I just couldn't for some reason. Um, I never was able to pass tests or get the work in on time or find the motivation to actually do these things. And around this time is when I would start using Adderall because a lot of college kids used Adderall to help them study, but I would just take the Adderall and end up just partying and drinking on it because I had no motivation to do my schoolwork. I just really didn't care. So after a while, I just quit community college and I got a retail job at Macy's. And it was just a constant cycle of binge drinking, cocaine, and LSD every night. The parties on the weekends were just insane. It was just these huge, like, parades of drunken college kids and looking back now it's just so gross and and I'm quite honestly thankful that I'm alive and 
my friends are alive and none of us got hurt or sexually assaulted or anything like that. I've, I've had a couple acquaintances that were sexually assaulted, but the fact that we were so intoxicated around hundreds of strangers who were also intoxicated in a college environment where sex and just the hookup culture is so rampant. I remember one day I was waking up for work and I had been on a cocaine binge the night before. My work was about 20 minutes away. I woke up 10 minutes before I had to be at my shift at 8.30 in the morning or something and I just was completely numb from head to toe and I remember freaking out thinking I didn't know if I was dead I didn't know if I was having a heart attack or a stroke I didn't know what was going on I couldn't find my car anywhere I'm running around finally I just had to call in and say I can't come in and they said you know Grace you've called in sick way more times than we've allotted you to be able to so basically after that I was fired um, which was a bummer because I was actually really good at that job i made my sales goals. I was like employee of the month a few times. They really enjoyed having me and I was able to keep my job longer than normal regardless of the absences I had because I was doing such a good job when I was there. Um, but finally they just had to let me go because I wasn't showing up. During this time I also stopped paying my rent uh, for the house that I was splitting with my best friends. Um, and I would lie about that, and there would be a few times when the landlord would come over and say, hey, you know, Grace hasn't paid her rent, you guys are going to be evicted, and it would turn into this whole thing where everyone would have to pull their money together, and that's pretty much when my lying behaviors began, just saying I had paid the rent when I didn't, uh, stealing checks from my roommates, trying to forge a check in their name to, to make the rent because I knew I didn't have it, and I didn't want to tell my friends I didn't have it telling my parents everything was fine, didn't tell any of my friends I was fired. I would just get in my car and drive around and pretend like I was at work and come home and just have zero income. It was pretty bad for a while, and, and soon enough, uh, as I found out, and as I've continuously found out as I work on my lying behaviors, you can't hide a lie for forever. It just It's not really possible. The truth is always going to come out somehow. That's what ended up happening. I remember one day I was just sitting there and I, I emailed my parents and the email was just me breaking down and I kind of was just like, something's wrong with me. You know, I, I can't stop drinking. I can't stop doing cocaine. Like I'm doing all these drugs. I was fired from my job. I'm not paying my rent. I'm lying to my friends. Um, at this time I had also developed an eating disorder. I was binge eating and then purging. And that was happening about at the highest point. It was happening every night, once a day probably. And then it kind of tapered down after a while because it's such an uncomfortable thing to do. And I wasn't losing weight because of it. It would be occasional, maybe twice a week. I could feel that taking a toll on my body. And so there was just a lot of things going on that clearly something inside of me was like, something's wrong here. Like, this isn't normal. So I made the decision to move home. I ended up going to see a psychiatrist. I saw him. He was recommended through my therapist, who I had been through before. He diagnosed me with bipolar 2, which is 
so there's two types of bipolar. There's bipolar one, which is the episodes of mania and the episodes of depression. Bipolar two is pretty much the same thing, except for the depression cycles are very, very low, lower, and um, there is never episodes of full mania. It's called hypomania, and so it's not quite the fun part of the being manic and thinking you're Superman and doing all those things, and, and I mean fun in a jokingly way because you do make impulsive decisions that ruin your life, but hypomania is more of a um, tapered-down version of that. So it's more of a, you, you talk really fast, you're, you're really happy, um, you are really outgoing, you want to do all these things, and then when you hit your depression cycle, it's just a very, very low, can't-get-out-of-bed kind of depression. So that psychiatrist prescribed me a, a medication called Lamictal, and that helped for a while. Looking back, I honestly don't know how much it was helping. I don't know if it was kind of a placebo of... I'm taking a medication now, and now I think it's working because my behaviors did continue. I definitely was getting help through therapy, and I was losing weight healthily. My eating disorder kind of went away on its own. Um, I was being as truthful as I could with my parents and everyone else in my life, trying to get rid of those lying behaviors. I ended up getting a job at a residential treatment center. It's a group home. It's a level 14 group home. It's a uh, residence for kids 8 to 17, and a lot of them come from the foster system. Some of them, their parents place them there. It's for kids with extreme emotional, emotionally disturbed children and extreme behaviors. So I didn't really know what the job was when I was getting into it, and at first, with the job, it was very overwhelming. It's 14-hour shifts. You're with these kids most of their day, especially on the weekends. You pick them up from school. You're making them their meals, doing their homework with them, um, making sure they're getting showered, making sure their rooms are clean, basically raising these kids, giving them their medications. But at the same time, they're displaying these behaviors that are extremely volatile. Um, and since we are a level 14, the, that means that we are legally allowed to restrain the kids manually. So I was getting in manual restraints with these kids if if they're coming at us, attacking us. There was a few different kinds of restraints. There was like a prone restraint, which is on the floor. There was a standing restraint, a sitting restraint. So you kind of had to call your own judgment and figure out if it warranted putting your hands on the kid and holding them down or if it was just something where you were kind of just going to sit there and maybe block the punches or if you're just going to let the kids spit on you or a lot of the restraints that I I had to do was to stop kids from committing suicide. We had a, a lot of suicidal kids, kids who would hide razor blades, and I've stopped probably upwards of 10 kids from killing themselves. Um, I remember one time I was on the floor with a girl who I am still in contact with, she was just one of those kids that was so sweet, and she just came from such a fucked-up family who just didn't love her and didn't want her and totally messed her up in the head. And she was trying to embed glass into her arm, and it was me and my boss at the time restraining her on the floor, trying to stop her from putting glass into her arm, and she's pushing us back. We're, we're sitting in the bathroom against a wall, and she's pushing us back so hard that all of our backs are making holes in the wall, so, and I just remember sitting there in that moment and just 
in the midst of that chaos, just thinking, this is how bad it could be. And it that job kind of gave me a sense of um, gratefulness that I did survive my time of my mini mental breakdown um, during the Santa Barbara time. The job taught me a lot of confidence. I was great at the job. I was really good at connecting with the kids. That was how I kind of found my niche is that I wanted to work with kids. I could relate to the kids because I understood what depression felt like. And I moved up to supervisor positions in that job. But after about three years, I started taking a diet pill from a really sketchy clinic um, that basically just gave you a, a baggie of diet pills for a hundred bucks and the pill was called fentramine it's pretty much speed and it makes you not eat anything so I rapidly lost about 45 pounds I wasn't eating anything but carrots I would just eat a big bag of carrots a day but I started having these weird seizure like incidences um didn't know what they were so I went into the hospital I was told that they didn't know if they were seizures. I had to do the whole EEG. I had to get a few MRIs. They didn't find anything um, in terms of seizures. But at the last MRI that they took, they found a brain tumor. It's benign. It's just kind of sitting there. It's not really doing anything. But so at this time, it, it was just between the, the phenamine, the diet pills, making me super anxious because of its basically speed finding out that I had a brain tumor, even though it's benign, and having these seizure activities, not knowing what was going on. Um, I was also in a relationship with um, a coworker at the time, and she was there for me a lot, but I wasn't giving her much because I had so much going on with me psychologically that at the same time, our relationship was very slowly deteriorating. Um, and that really hurt. That was a relationship where I, I thought that I was going to marry that girl. We talked about it all the time, getting married. It just, my, my mental state just kind of was so rapidly just falling apart because of all these things. And I, and I didn't really know why I knew, I knew why, and I knew it was because of the pill and I knew it was because of all these, my work was really stressing me out. Obviously it's a super stressful job. You're working 60 hours a week, um, not getting paid enough. So I went back to my psychiatrist and he prescribed me, uh, Lexapro to help with depression. Lexapro, I took it probably three times and the third time it made my tongue swell up, which was really scary. It's a very rare reaction. It doesn't happen that often. And so I went back to him. He prescribed me another antidepressant called Wellbutrin, which was great. I loved Wellbutrin, but that ended up giving me the same seizure-type feeling. So I had to stop with that. Um, so then he prescribed me Paxil, which is another antidepressant. It's a really old-school drug. Um, one of the side effects, though, is that it makes you gain weight. And so I had gained all that weight back that I lost because I stopped taking the diet pills. And at this time, my anxiety, or what I thought was anxiety, was getting really bad, and it was hindering. I was calling out of work. I couldn't do my job well. I wasn't being there for the kids as much as I should have been. I wasn't being there for my partner at work as I should have been. I wasn't in my relationship as much as I should have been. Um, so my psychiatrist prescribed me Xanax. Um, I took it, and it was fine. 
I think I started on 0.5 milligrams, and I told him it really wasn't enough. Uh, so he put, bumped me up to 0.5 and then eventually to 1. And he had about seven refills on each of these different dosages. So I was basically had as much Xanax as I wanted. It is Xanax is the worst drug I have ever come in contact with. If you have never taken it, and and I'm sure that there are people out there with panic disorders and um, severe anxiety that take it, and it helps them, and I'm so glad that it helps them. But if you take this stuff recreationally, it is so easy to overdose on, and it is so addictive. It is insane. I became addicted after... Granted, I have an addictive personality anyways, but I have, I became addicted to this stuff after a week probably because it just, it's so calming and it gives you such a euphoria. Especially people with anxiety are just striving to feel normal and to not only feel normal, but to feel euphoric about your life is just incredible. And so you just take more and more. My psychiatrist, however, didn't really talk about side effects of Xanax, um, the potential for addiction, how to take it safely. In my opinion, I don't think that the psychiatrist was a very, he wasn't very aware of the dangers of prescribing Xanax, it seemed like. And maybe I'm wrong, I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't say, and this is just my experience, but he didn't talk about um, drinking with Xanax, and he knew I drink. I was very upfront with him. I said, I drink most nights a week. I black out sometimes, and drinking with Xanax is is one of the most deadly things you can do. It is You can stop breathing so easily on dosages that you wouldn't even believe. The lowest dosages, if you're drinking with Xanax, it will stop your respiratory system, and it's so dangerous. Um, so that kind of became a habit because drinking alcohol with the Xanax, having a beer with two Xanax would enhance the Xanax by like tenfold. And then I could just sit in my room and have a great time and not be anxious and not have to go out in the world and be self-conscious and talk to people. I could just be in my room and feel amazing and, and be on social media and pretend that my life was okay. At this time, me and... um that girl had broken up. I was really going through one of the hardest times in my life, um, losing her. I ended up dating a guy, uh, another coworker, which is never a good idea. Never date your coworkers. Quickly after her, and it was kind of just like a rebound. I was very emotionally manipulative with him because I was feeling so empty and so broken from that previous relationship that I kind of just dove into that one with him and made him feel like it was just this huge magical like I said I love you right away and it was just this and he he is such a sweet and sensitive guy we're still friends he was there for me more than most people have ever been there for me basically what happened was one night I had taken I think 4.5 Xanax or something I just all of a sudden got this really bad sense of dysphoria, which is basically, as you can assume, the opposite of euphoria. It's it's just this feeling that just everything is horrible. And it's it's like depression, but it's like you're just looking at the world in such disdain and such disgust. And it's just kind of like a moment of the world is absolutely disturbingly awful. 
I don't know where it came from, but anyways, so yes, I had been drinking and taking the Xanax, and I just remember going into my bathroom, and uh, my boyfriend was supposed to come over when he got off work. I remember uh, taking a razor blade out of one of my razors, and I just started cutting myself, and I had never done anything like that before. The only time I had seen it was when I had watched kids do it when we were trying to stop them from cutting themselves at my work with the emotionally disturbed kids, and I think subconsciously I took that that coping skill with me, which is really sad, but yeah, and I just kept cutting, and it was really bad, and I just remember sending him a picture saying, please hurry, get over here. Uh, I had lived with my parents, but I lived in a granny unit in the back, so it was completely separate. Finally, I was like, you need to go get my parents, because I was just bleeding out too much. Um, I had to go to the emergency room. They bandaged me up. I ended up having to go to a psychiatric hospital for, I think I was only there for like five hours because after I had sobered up, I realized the stupidity of what I had done and, and they, I talked to a psychiatrist and kind of explained what was going on and just said it was the influence of the Xanax and the alcohol and clearly an underlying theme of depression, but um, I'm not suicidal. I, I never wanted to die. I wasn't suicidal. I just was so numb, didn't know what was going on. I just knew that there was something wrong with me, and it was that feeling that I had since I was a little girl that I was just different, and it just felt so amplified. Um, it just kept getting worse and worse. So I actually decided to check myself into a, a mental health facility slash rehabilitation center um, in Palm Desert. I went there probably a week after this incident happened, and I was there for three months. I completely dove into it. I went in headfirst. It was an interesting experience. The facility itself was not very high quality. Right now, they're in the midst of this huge scandal of getting shut down, and it, it wasn't a very high-quality place, but the fact that I dove into it head first and I made myself make friends with these people who were suffering the same way that I was made so much of a difference, and I met people from all walks of life just struggling with drug addiction, struggling with mental health issues, struggling with both. So I was there as initially as a mental health uh, patient, and then they changed me to dual diagnosis because I had to wean off of the Xanax with um, Ativan. There we were taken to one psychiatrist for the entire treatment facility, one psychiatrist, and he was a very interesting man. He introduced himself to me as a doctor to the stars, he told me that he treats Hollywood celebrities and was very boisterous and obnoxious. And it was kind of just like, I don't care that you treat celebrities and just please fix me because I feel fucking awful. He was very kind of arrogant and very fluid in the way that he prescribed medication. He upped my dose of Paxil. He obviously took me off Xanax. I wasn't allowed to be on there. It was a term of that would break being sober. Um, he put me on gabapentin for seizures. He put me on trazodone for sleep. I started on 25 milligrams of trazodone. I don't know if you've ever tried trazodone. 
I know previously I think I've heard you talk about you trying Seroquel once and how it knocked you out. Trazodone's kind of the same. It, it, it knocks you out. It gives you weird dreams, um, and it gives you a horrible hangover feeling in the morning. 50 milligrams is what I started with. Um, and the thing about Trazodone is you have to fall asleep bef- within 20 minutes. Otherwise, uh, your brain just gets wired to stay awake, and you just literally eat everything in sight. And I learned that lesson quite a few times. It would just be me going into the office and saying, hey, last night I had trouble falling asleep. It took me five more minutes to fall asleep than usual. And he would just up the dose and up the dose, and I wasn't really questioning it. Um, I ended up being on 250 milligrams of trazodone when I left that place, which is enough to knock out any size person for hours. And I don't know how I was functioning on that. He left my diagnosis of bipolar 2. He also added generalized anxiety to my um, diagnoses, avoidant personality disorder, panic disorder, seasonal affective disorder, and major depressive disorder. He also put me on Buspar, which was a anti-anxiety medication. It's really old school, and if you take too much of it, it makes you feel... The term is called akathasia, and sometimes people get it from taking psychiatric meds if they take too high of a dose. It's the worst feeling in the world. It's it's kind of like restless leg syndrome and in the way that you just want to get out of your skin. It's kind of a feeling of you can't be in your skin anymore and you just want to scratch your skin off. I just stopped taking the abuse bar because it was too much for me, um, and then I was weaning off the Xanax with Ativan. I left... The treatment center after three months. During treatment, I stayed sober for a while. I relapsed a total of three times. Once I went out to get alcohol, we snuck out, got alcohol, and drank. Um, didn't show up in our pee test because we had to be drug tested every week. Once I found an Adderall pill in a drawer that someone had left, and I took that, that resulted in me getting some privileges taken away. And then the last time I relapsed in the treatment center, I actually had a girlfriend in the treatment center, which is also never a good idea. Rehab romances, as they call them, never really work. Sometimes they do. Most of the times they don't. But we had this grand idea to just go, and we rented a really nice hotel room, and we just got shit-faced hammered, and it was... I woke up the next morning, and I had throw-up all over me. I had cigarette burns all over me. Uh, My girlfriend at the time said that I was trying to climb over the balcony. I was crying, um, telling her she didn't understand. I I had ended up relapsing before this as well, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, I left my apartment that I was staying at, and I got drunk at a library of all places, and staff came to pick me up and I ended up just smashing a lamp into the wall and it was just all this crazy stuff that that really isn't me and if if you knew me as a person I'm shy to new people I'm very friendly I'm very generous I'm I'm not mean-spirited I'm really not but it kind of just felt like all the anger of my failed relationships and having to be in a mental health facility while all my other friends were graduating college and succeeding in life and they don't have drug problems and they can drink and not black out and it was just this anger coming out it was just the worst and after that was when I actually decided to 
um, really get serious about getting sober. Um, I didn't initially go in there with the purpose of getting sober. You just obviously have to be sober while you're in there. But I talked it over with a counselor and I said, I think it's best for me to just not drink because I realized that I wasn't drinking to have fun. I was drinking to to mask feelings that I didn't want to feel. And that's the reason why I would black out is because my feelings of insecurity and not being good enough were so bad that I would have to drink so much that I just didn't want to remember anything. Um, so I graduated that program. I moved back home to Northern California where I got a new psychiatrist and I really liked him. He totally wiped off my diagnosis of bipolar two. He said, absolutely not. You don't need to be on all these medications. He diagnosed me with borderline personality disorder, which was hard for me to hear because I knew and I know people with borderline personality disorder, and um, it's a very severe personality disorder. It's very volatile. It can be extremely damaging, the, the damage that can be done in relationships. It's uh, one of the big signs of borderline is real or imagined abandonment of people in your life. And I've never had that. I've never thought that people were going to leave me. Um, but the signs that did match up with it are um, self-mutilation, uh, impulsivity, which was a huge one for me. There was a couple other things, but one of the big ones was a fear of abandonment, which I never had. And so I always kind of felt uneasy about that because I didn't feel like my actions were severe enough to warrant a borderline diagnosis, but I kind of just went along with it and was just letting it be and seeing how it would play out. And, and I was also focusing on not defining myself by my disorder. And it becomes a point when, when you go through so much mental health issues and so many, so many obstacles that are coming from your own mind and your own brain and your own negative thoughts, it's almost, it gets romanticized in a way for me personally. Um, I know I've heard others talk about this and I know not everyone feels this way, but I started romanticizing it because now these things that were wrong with me became who I was and they, be, they made me different. They set me apart from everyone else. And I had never felt I had always felt inferior to everyone, and now I had something special about me, which was that I was fucked up in the head, basically, but I had gotten through it, and I was doing the work to get through it, and so I was strong, and I had these things, these abilities in me to get over something that most people could never get over, and it, and in a sense, that's a good thing, because you're not just being apathetic and giving up to the um, disease, in another way, if you romanticize it too much, then it becomes your identity, and then it's hard to live a life outside of that. It's been a few years, and now that I'm getting older, I'm realizing that that's not what I want, is I don't want to have be a person with a label on me. I want to be able to very openly talk about my disorders and my struggles with mental health, but I also want to be able to do things in life and succeed and get things done and reach my goals and just know that I did that myself 
and not have it be about beating the disorder. Just be thankful that I did this myself, um, if that makes sense. So that, that's always been a hard one for me is, is not making my disorder who I am. And the psychiatrist that I was seeing that diagnosed me with bi or borderline personality, um, eventually just, he prescribed me hydroxyzine, which is a antihistamine, but it's also used as an anti-anxiety medication. And it was kind of just like a PRN, kind of something that I would just take if I needed to take it because he didn't want to prescribe me any um, benzodiazepines like Xanax because of the history of the addiction and because of my addictive personality. And hydroxyzine is not that um, addictive, or it's not addictive. I was doing pretty well for a while, and then it just felt myself slipping back. I ended up getting a job, which is my current job. Um, I'm a special education teacher, and I am head over heels in love with this job. I love working with special education kids. They are so selfless, and they teach me so much every day about just living in the moment. And as much as I loved my other job of working with the emotionally disturbed kids, it was hard for someone with mental health issues themselves to help others and not be affected by it. And so working with special ed kids is such a different experience because there's no malice in anything that they do. There's no sneakiness. They say good morning, then they don't spit on you or put hand sanitizer in your coffee every morning, which is something that would go on at my old job. And it's just a very pleasant change um, from the other thing. And I do feel like I'm making a difference because these are kids who obviously need extra help. And a lot of the world doesn't understand some of the disorders that warrant uh, to be a special education kid like autism or Down syndrome. People don't know how to react to children or adults with these diseases. And so it's really grounding and humbling for me to learn from these kids how they would like to be treated and seen in the world and not just judge them off of a textbook or how other people su should suggest that I should approach them. I ended up switching psychiatrists again, so this would be my fourth psychiatrist now um, because of insurance issues. So I saw my fourth psychiatrist and did the whole spiel. I had to sit down for about two hours telling my whole story from when I was about 10 years old, just like I've told this one. Um, and he instantly was like, I think you have ADHD. And I had never really thought of it before. The more I researched it and the more he told me about it, he was very open in the way that he was, he wasn't labeling me as ADHD. He was saying, do these things relate to you? Do these things call to you? Do, do you find yourself doing these things? If so, you may have ADHD. It wasn't, you have ADHD. It was more about, let's explore together and see if maybe this is what the problem is. Going back and looking over my past, it, it just, it was like a light bulb came on. It was incredible. It was my lack of attention in school, how I was as smart as other kids. I skipped grades, and yet I still wasn't, I was failing classes, and I just couldn't pay attention in class. I wasn't good at tests. I knew the answers. I just couldn't get them down on the paper. And the thing about ADHD is if it's untreated, that it comes with 
comorbid diseases like depression and anxiety. So the diagnosis of ADHD actually encompassed everything that I had been experiencing, including the depression, because if if you are someone with ADHD and you have those feelings of um, inferiority, you, of course, are going to be depressed. And so that's where the depression and the anxiety was coming from of, I know I'm capable of doing these things, but I just can't do them, and I don't know why. And so ADHD just really gave me a solid answer, it felt like. And I had taken Adderall in the past, like I had said, in college a few times, and it didn't really do anything for me. I wasn't crazy about it, and I was hesitant to take it because I do know it's addictive, but my psychiatrist really worked with me, and we talked about it, and he said, I I think you should try it out, and so he prescribed me 10 10 milligrams of Adderall to take, and currently now I'm on 20 milligrams of Adderall a day, and my life has changed completely. My psychiatrist before the one that I have now had me on 100 milligrams of Prozac. If you Google Prozac and the normal dosage, 20 milligrams is a normal dosage. 100 milligrams is insane. No one's on 100 milligrams. It's it's almost lethal. So my psychiatrist now was like, we're not doing that. He is weaning me off of the Prozac. He put me on a bunch of vitamins, which I really like because I think that they help and they seem to be making a difference. Not a huge difference, not a huge overnight sensational difference. More contentment throughout the day. Um, so currently I'm on 20 milligrams Prozac and uh, my Adderall. And then I'm on a number of vitamins like vitamin D, magnesium, just basic vitamins. My life is so different now. I can concentrate. I can get things done. I am motivated to go back to school I, I know how to deal with my depression now. I can, I have my coping skills and a lot of that is from the mental health, um, center that I went to. I got a lot of coping skills from there and just from meeting people who were coming from this place of such darkness. And I, I think I really wanted to share my story with you and this podcast because I think that you are really open to sharing stories like this because they are real and people my age do go through these things and not everyone goes through things like I went through and there are people who go through more severe things than I did or less severe things than I did in terms of mental health but especially in today's age with so many things going on at once with um, phones and cars and just there's just so many things happening there's always something distracting you and always something going on to me, at least, there's this sense of, especially on social media, trying to one-up another. And I don't want to go on a rant about social media, but I, I do think it has a big impact on people uh, of all ages, but especially my age, uh, 20 to 30 years old. I'm 25 right now. Kind of just wanted to touch on that aspect of how how real it is and that it's okay to feel these things. But on the other hand get help like please get help like reach out not everyone has close friends not everyone has a family that accepts them for who they are not everyone has health insurance not everyone has 
whatever it is they need, but there's always resources, there's always phone numbers, there's always websites that you can visit, and I, and I know that people hear this all the time, and it's always repeated, but there really are resources out there, even if you don't think that you have the ones that you need. There's people willing to help, there's people who dedicate their lives to helping people who don't have insurance, who don't have a, a network of friends and family supporting them, who are alone in the world, who are homeless, who are addicts, who do have these problems, these mental problems, and they don't know why, and they don't know what to do about it, and it's ruining their lives. And and I, I also wanted to just touch on the dark side of life and how I've come to really honor that side of me and, and that darkness. And it's kind of like it's that side of me that listens to true crime podcasts and is so interested in crazy stories about just true crime stories and stories about that people have been through that are just insane and and just the dark side of life. I just think there's there is a beauty in it and there's a there's a harm in it. I do think that there's a harm in it, obviously, and I've been through that harm. But honoring that dark side makes you own it and it and, and you can own that part of you, that part of you that isn't happy all the time, that part of you that is so hurt deep down that you don't you don't even want to face it or you don't even want to deal with it. That part of you needs to become come to the light like that part of you. You need to talk about it makes it real and it and it brings it forward and it helps kind of guide you where you need to go like that that darkness in you is in everybody and to shun that darkness or to suppress that darkness just makes it stronger and it and it's just makes it inevitably come out in the long run it's going to come out somehow and it's going to come out in a really bad way it manifests in in ways that you wouldn't imagine it does so you have to realize that everyone else does too. Whether or not they admit it, everyone has a dark side. And that dark side, there's such beauty in that dark side. And obviously there's beauty in the light too, but bringing light to that dark side will help you get through anything. Because once you face that darkness in you, and once you honor that darkness in you, it, it becomes a part of you that you can control. It becomes something that is attached to you. It's physically a part of you, but you own it and you control it. Life isn't all just happy and sunshine and rainbows. And and if we pretend it is, then we become more depressed because we think that we're supposed to feel that way all the time. And that's just not true. And it's just not possible. So, yeah, um, that's my story. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I really appreciate it. I love every podcast that you do. Um, I love all the episodes, all the people you've had on the peripheral, of course, Generation Y. And again, thank you so much. Okay, bye. Thank you so much for sharing. I I do have a few thoughts. I definitely don't think life is full of cotton candy and rainbows. I think sometimes I need to lighten up, though, eat the cotton candy, forget about the darkness for a while. Uh, So many things that I can relate to and that gave me pause. I'm glad she talks about the number of therapists and and diagnosis she has. Getting help is never a quick fix. It can take a long time and be ongoing for your entire life. But it's definitely worth reaching out for assistance and self-maintenance. She mentioned Trazodone and Seroquel. Seroquel knocked me out for 48 hours. Meanwhile, Trazodone 
has very little effect on me. So it's interesting how drugs affect people in different ways. Xanax, for me, can be very euphoric, and I can see how it can be very addictive. I myself do not have an addictive personality, so I've never struggled with any drug in my adult life. Uh, In my teenage years, I definitely used a lot more. I do have a lot of sympathy for anyone who either self-harms or even hurts others while they're under the influence because I truly believe that if you're drunk or strung out on drugs, you are not in control of your facilities. Yes, you chose to use a drug. That is the cause of your actions later. But I am one of those people that thinks that when you are drunk or under the influence, that you aren't exactly responsible for your actions when you're under the influence, but you are responsible for putting yourself under the influence. I don't know how the criminal justice system should apply there, but it's something to consider. It's obvious that mental illness and drug addiction seemingly go hand in hand in a lot of cases. If you take a drug and all of your inhibitions are gone and you don't have that logical angel on your shoulder telling you not to slice open your arm or drive your car into oncoming traffic or hit send on that tweet, I get it. There's a problem. I also happen to have uh, restless leg syndrome and drinking alcohol or smoking marijuana makes it far worse. I stray away from most drugs and alcohol these days because I'm just too old for that shit. It doesn't make me feel good and I want to be on top of my game. So I'm much happier being sober and I think I enjoy other people's company and they enjoy mine because I'm clear-headed. So please look out for the part two on Patreon. I should post it in the next few days. And stay safe, enjoy sobriety, and always seek out help if you need it.